Chapter Twenty One of The Egoist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Egoist, a comedy in narrative by George Meredith. Chapter Twenty One. Clara's Meditations. Two were sleepless that night, Miss Middleton and Colonel de Craye. She was in a fever, lying like stone, with her brain burning. Quick natures run out to calamity in any little shadow of it flung before. Terrors of apprehension drive them. They stop not short of the uttermost when they are on the wings of dread. A frown means tempest, a wind wreck. To see fire is to be seized by it. When it is the approach of their loathing that they fear, they are in the tragedy of the embrace at a breath. And then is the wrestle between themselves and horror, between themselves and evil, which promises aid, themselves and weakness, which calls on evil, themselves and the better part of them, which whispers no beguilement. The false course she had taken through sophistical cowardice appalled the girl. She was lost. The advantage taken of it by Willoughby put on the form of strength, and made her feel abject reptilious. She was lost, carried away on the flood of the cataract. He had won her father for an ally. Strangely, she knew not how. He had succeeded in swaying her father, who had previously not more than tolerated him. Son Willoughby, on her father's lip, meant something that scenes and scenes would have to struggle with, to the outwearying of her father and herself. She revolved on the son Willoughby, through moods of stupefaction, contempt, revolt, subjection. It meant that she was vanquished. It meant that her father's esteem for her was forfeited. She saw him a gigantic image of discomposure. Her recognition of her cowardly feebleness brought the brood of fatalism. What was the right of so miserable a creature as she to excite disturbance? Let her fortunes be good or ill. It would be quieter to float kinder to everybody thank heaven for the chances of a short life once in a net desperation is graceless we may be brutes in our earthly destinies in our endurance of them we need not be brutish she was now in the luxury of passivity when we throw our burden on the powers above and do not love them the need to love them drew her out of it, that she might strive with the unbearable, and by sheer striving, even though she were graceless, come to love them humbly. It is here that the seed of good teaching supports a soul, for the condition might be mapped, and where kismet whispers us to shut eyes, and instruction bids us look up is at a well-marked crossroad of the contest. 
quick of sensation, but not courageously resolved, she perceived how blunderingly she had acted. For a punishment it seemed to her that she, who had not known her mind, must learn to conquer her nature and submit. She had accepted Willoughby, therefore she accepted him. The fact became a matter of the past, past debating. In the abstract, this contemplation of circumstances went well. A plain duty lay in her way. And then a disembodied thought flew round her, comparing her with Vernon, to her discredit. He had for years borne much that was distasteful to him, for the purpose of studying, and with his poor income helping the poorer than himself. She dwelt on him in pity and envy. He had lived in this place, and so must she, and he had not been dishonoured by his modesty. He had not failed of self-control, because he had a life within. She was almost imagining she might imitate him when the clash of a sharp physical thought, the difference, the difference, told her she was woman and never could submit. Can a woman have an inner life apart from him she is joked to? She tried to nestle deep away in herself, in some corner where the abstract view had comforted her, to flee from thinking as her feminine blood directed. It was a vain effort. The difference, the cruel fate, the defencelessness of women pursued her, strung her to wild horses' backs, tossed her on savage wastes. In her case duty was shame, hence it could not be broadly duty. That intolerable difference proscribed the word. But the fire of a brain burning high and kindling everything lighted up herself against herself. Was one so volatile as she a person with a will? Were they not a multitude of flitting wishes that she took for a will? Was she, feather-headed that she was, a person to make a stand on physical pride? If she could yield her hand without reflection, as she conceived she had done, from incapacity to conceive herself doing it reflectively, was she much better than purchasable stuff that has nothing to say to the bargain? Furthermore, said her incandescent reason, she had not suspected such art of cunning in Willoughby. Then might she not be deceived altogether? Might she not have misread him? Stronger than she had fancied, might he not be likewise more estimable? The world was favourable to him. He was prized by his friends. She reviewed him. It was all in one flash. It was not much less intentionally favourable than the world's review and that of his friends. But beginning with the idea of them, she recollected, heard Willoughby's voice pronouncing his opinion of his friends and the world, of Vernon Whitford and Colonel de Craye, for example, and of men and women an undefined agreement to have the same regard for him as his friends and the world had, provided that he kept at the same distance from her, 
was the termination of this phase, occupying about a minute in time, and reached through a series of intensely vivid pictures. His face, at her petition to be released, lowering behind them for a background and a comment. "'I cannot, I cannot,' she cried aloud, and it struck her that her repulsion was a holy warning. Better be graceless than a loathing wife, better appear inconsistent. Why should she not appear such as she was? Why? We answer that question usually in angry reliance on certain superb qualities, injured fine qualities of ours undiscovered by the world, not much more than suspected by ourselves, which are still our fortress, where pride sits at home, solitary and impervious as an octogenarian conservative. But it is not possible to answer it so, when the brain is raging like a pine torch, and the devouring illumination leaves not a spot of our nature covert. The aspect of her weakness was unrelieved, and frightened her back to her loathing. From her loathing, as soon as her sensations had quickened to realize it, she was hurled on her weakness. She was graceless, she was inconsistent, she was volatile, she was unprincipled, she was worse than a prey to wickedness, capable of it. She was only waiting to be misled. Nay, the idea of being misled suffused her with languor, for then the battle would be over, and she a happy weed of the sea no longer suffering those tugs at the roots, but leaving it to the sea to heave and contend. She would be like Constantia, then, like her in her fortunes, never so brave she feared. Perhaps very like Constantia in her fortunes. Poor troubled bodies waking up in the night to behold visually the spectre cast forth from the perplexed machinery inside them, stare at it for a space, till touching consciousness they dive down under the sheets with fish-like alacrity. Clara looked at her thought and suddenly headed downward in a crimson gulf. She must have obtained absolution, or else it was oblivion below. Soon after the plunge, her first object of meditation was Colonel de Cray. She thought of him calmly. He seemed a refuge. He was very nice. He was a holiday character. His lithe figure, neat firm footing of the stag, swift intelligent expression, and his ready frolicsomeness, pleasant humour, cordial temper, and his Irishry whereon he was at liberty to play, as on the emblem-harp of the isle, were soothing to think of. The suspicion that she tricked herself with this calm observation of him was dismissed. Issuing out of torture, her young nature eluded the irradiating brain in search of refreshment and she luxuriated at a feast in considering him, shower on a parched land that he was. He spread new air abroad. She had no reason to suppose he was not a good man. 
she could securely think of him. Besides, he was bound by his prospective office in support of his friend Willoughby to be quite harmless. And besides, you are not to expect logical sequences. The showery refreshment in thinking of him lay in the sort of assurance it conveyed, that the more she thought, the less would he be likely to figure as an obnoxious official, that is, as the man to do by Willoughby at the altar what her father would, under the supposition, be doing by her. Her mind reposed on Colonel de Craye. His name was Horace. Her father had worked with her at Horace. She knew most of the odes and some of the satires and epistles of the poet. They reflected benevolent beams on the gentleman of the poet's name. He too was vivacious, had fun, common sense, elegance, loved rusticity, he said, sighed for a country life, fancied retiring to Canada to cultivate his own domain. Modus agri non ita magnus, a delight. And he too, when in the country, sighed for town. There were strong features of resemblance. He had hinted in fun at not being rich. Que virtus et quanta sit vivere parvo. But that quotation applied to and belonged to Vernon Whitford. Even so little disarranged her meditations. She would have thought of Vernon as her instinct of safety prompted, had not his exactions been excessive. He proposed to help her with advice only. She was to do everything for herself, do and dare everything, decide upon everything. He told her flatly that so would she learn to know her own mind, and flatly that it was her penance. She had gained nothing by breaking down and pouring herself out to him. He would have her bring Willoughby and her father face to face, and be witness of their interview, herself the theme. What alternative was there? Obedience to the word she had pledged. He talked of patience, of self-examination, and patience. But all of her, she was all marked urgent. This house was a cage, and the world, her brain was a cage, until she could obtain her prospect of freedom. As for the house, she might leave it, yonder was the dawn. She went to her window to gaze at the first colour along the grey. Small satisfaction came of gazing at that or at herself. She shunned glass and sky. One and the other stamped her as a slave in a frame. It seemed to her she had been so long in this place that she was fixed here. It was her world, and to imagine an alp was like seeking to get back to childhood. Unless a miracle intervened, here she would have to pass her days. Men are so little chivalrous now that no miracle ever intervenes. Consequently, she was doomed. She took a pen and began a letter to a dear friend, Lucy Darleton, a promised bridesmaid bidding her countermand orders for her bridal dress, and proposing a tour in Switzerland. 
she wrote of the mountain country with real abandonment to imagination it became a visioned loophole of escape she rose and clasped the shawl over her nightdress to ward off chillness and sitting to the table again could not produce a word the lines she had written were condemned they were ludicrously inefficient the letter was torn to pieces she stood very clearly doomed after a fall of tears upon looking at the scraps she dressed herself and sat by the window and watched the blackbird on the lawn as he hopped from shafts of dewy sunlight to the long stretched dewy tree shadows considering in her mind that dark dews are more meaningful than bright the beauty of the dews of woods more sweet than meadow dews it signified only that she was quieter she had gone through her crisis in the anticipation of it that is how quick natures will often be cold and hard or not much moved when the positive crisis arrives and why it is that they are prepared for astonishing leaps over the gradations which should render their conduct comprehensible to us if not excusable she watched the blackbird throw up his head stiffly and peck to right and left dangling the worm on each side his orange beak speckle-breasted thrushes were at work and a wagtail that ran as with clara's own rapid little steps thrush and blackbird flew to the nest they had wings the lovely morning breathed of sweet earth into her open window and made it painful in the dense twitter chirp cheep and song of the air to resist the innocent intoxication oh to love was not said by her but if she had sung as her nature prompted it would have been her war with willoughby sprang of a desire to love repelled by distaste her cry for freedom was a cry to be free to love she discovered it half shuddering to love oh no no shape of man nor impalpable nature either but to love unselfishness and helpfulness and planted strength in something then loving and being loved a little what strength would be hers she could utter all the words needed to willoughby and to her father locked in her love walking in this world living in that previously she had cried despairing if i were loved jealousy of constantia's happiness envy of her escape ruled her then and she remembered the cry though not perfectly her plain speaking to herself she chose to think she had meant if willoughby were capable of truly loving for now the fire of her brain had sunk and refuges and subterfuges were round about it the thought of personal love was encouraged she chose to think for the sake of the strength it lent her to carve her way to freedom she had just before felt rather the reverse but she could not exist with that feeling and it was true that freedom was not so indistinct in her fancy 
as the idea of love. Were men, when they were known, like him she knew too well? The arch-tempter's question to her was there. She put it away. Wherever she turned, it stood observing her. She knew so much of one man, nothing of the rest. Naturally, she was curious. Vernon might be sworn to be unlike, but he was exceptional. What of the other in the house? Maidens are commonly reduced to read the masters of their destinies by their instincts, and when these have been edged by overactivity, they must hoodwink their maidenliness to suffer themselves to read, and then they must dupe their minds, else men would soon see they were gifted to discern. Total ignorance being their pledge of purity to men, they have to expunge the writing of their perceptives on the tablets of the brain. They have to know not when they do know. The instinct of seeking to know, crossed by the task of blotting knowledge out, creates that conflict of the natural with the artificial creature to which their ultimately revealed double face complained of by ever dissatisfied men is owing. Wonder in no degree that they indulge a craving to be fools, or that many of them act the character. Jeer at them as little for not showing growth. You have reared them to this pitch and at this pitch they have partly civilized you. Supposing you to want it done folly, you must yield just as many points in your requisitions as are needed to let the wits of young women reap their due harvest and be of good use to their souls. You will then have a fair battle, a braver with better results. Clara's inner eye traversed Colonel de Cray at a shot. She had immediately to blot out the vision of Captain Oxford in him, the revelation of his laughing contempt for Willoughby, the view of mercurial principles, the scribbled histories of light-love passages. She blotted it out, kept it from her mind, so she knew him, knew him to be a sweeter and a variable Willoughby, a generous kind of Willoughby, a Willoughby butterfly, without having the free mind to summarize him and picture him for a warning. Scattered features of him, such as the instincts call up, were not sufficiently impressive. Besides, the clouded mind was opposed to her receiving impressions. Young Crossjay's voice in the still morning air came to her ears. The dear Gillis chatter of the boy's voice. Why, assuredly, it was young Crossjay who was the man she loved. And he loved her. And he was going to be an unselfish, sustaining, true, strong man. The man she longed for, for anchorage. Oh, the dear voice, woodpecker and thrush in one. He never ceased to chatter to Vernon Whitford, walking beside him with a swinging stride off to the lake for their morning swim. Happy couple! The morning gave them both a freshness and innocence above human. They seemed to Clara made of morning air and clear lake water. Crossjay's voice ran up and down a diatonic scale, with here and there a query in semitone, 
and a laugh on a ringing note. She wondered what he could have to talk of so incessantly, and imagined all the dialogue. He prattled of his yesterday, today and tomorrow, which did not imply past and future, but his vivid present. She felt like one vainly trying to fly in hearing him. She felt old. The consolation she arrived at was to feel maternal. She wished to hug the boy. Trot and stride, cross Jay and Vernon entered the park, careless about wet grass, not once looking at the house. Crossjay ranged ahead and picked flowers, bounding back to show them. Clara's heart beat at a fancy that her name was mentioned. If those flowers were for her, she would prize them. The two bathers dipped over an undulation. Her loss of them rattled her chains. Deeply dwelling on their troubles has the effect upon the young of helping to forgetfulness, for they cannot think without imagining their imaginations are saturated with their pleasures. And the collision, though they are unable to exchange sad for sweet, distills an opiate. Am I solemnly engaged? she asked herself. She seemed to be awakening. She glanced at her bed, where she had passed the night of ineffectual moaning, and out on the high wave of grass, where Crossjay and his good friend had vanished. Was the struggle all to be gone over again? Little by little her intelligence of her actual position crept up to submerge her heart. I am in his house, she said. It resembled a discovery. So strangely had her opiate and power of dreaming wrought through her tortures. She said it gasping. She was in his house, his guest, his betrothed, sworn to him. The fact stood out cut in steel on the pitiless daylight. That consideration drew her to be an early wanderer in the wake of Crossjay. Her station was among the beaches on the flank of the boy's return, and while waiting there, the novelty of her waiting to waylay anyone, she who had played the contrary part, told her more than it pleased her to think. Yet she could admit that she did desire to speak with Vernon, as with a counsellor, harsh and curt but wholesome. The bathers reappeared on the grass ridge, racing and flapping wet towels. Someone hailed them. A sound of the galloping hoof drew her attention to the avenue. She saw Willoughby dash across the park level, and dropping a word to Vernon, ride away. Then she allowed herself to be seen. Crossjay shouted. Willoughby turned his head, but not his horse's head. The boy sprang up to Clara. He had swum across the lake and back. He had raced Mr. Whitford and beaten him. How he wished Miss Middleton had been able to be one of them. Clara listened to him enviously. Her thought was, we women are nailed to our sex. She said, and you have just been talking to Sir Willoughby? Crossjay drew himself up to give an imitation of the baronet's hand moving in adieu. He would not have done that had he not smelled sympathy with the performance. 
She declined to smile. Crossjay repeated it and laughed. He made a broader exhibition of it to Vernon approaching. I say, Mr. Whitford, who's this? Vernon doubled to catch him. Crossjay fled and resumed his magnificent air in the distance. Good morning, Miss Middleton. You are out early, said Vernon, rather pale and stringy from his cold swim, and rather hard-eyed with a sharp exercise following it. She had expected some of the kindness she wanted to reject, for he could speak very kindly, and she regarded him as her doctor of medicine, who would at least present the futile drug. Good morning, she replied. Willoughby will not be home till the evening. You could not have had a finer morning for your bath. No. I will walk as fast as you like. I am perfectly warm. But you prefer fast walking. Out. Ah, yes, that I understand. The walk back. Why is Willoughby away today? He has business. After several steps, she said, He makes very sure of papa. Not without reason, you will find, said Vernon. Can it be? I am bewildered. I had papa's promise. To leave the hall for a day or two? It would have been. Possibly. But other heads are at work as well as yours. If you had been in earnest about it, you would have taken your father into your confidence at once. That was the course I ventured to propose on the supposition. In earnest? I cannot imagine that you doubt it. I wish to spare him. This is a case in which he can't be spared. If I had been bound to any other. I did not know then who held me a prisoner. I thought I had only to speak to him sincerely. Not many men would give up their prize for a word. Willoughby the last of any. Price rang through her thrillingly from Vernon's mouth and soothed her degradation. She would have liked to protest that she was very little of a prize, a poor prize, not one at all in general estimation, only one to a man reckoning his property, no prize in the true sense. The importunity of pain saved her. Does he think I can change again? Am I treated as something won in a lottery? To stay here is indeed more than I can bear. And if he's calculating, Mr. Whitford, if he calculates on another change, his plotting to keep me here is inconsiderate, not very wise. Changes may occur in absence. Wise or not, he has the right to scheme his best to keep you. She looked on Vernon with a shade of wondering reproach. Why? What right? The right you admit when you ask him to release you. He has the right to think you deluded, and to think you may come to a better mood if you remain, a mood more agreeable to him. I mean, he has that right absolutely. You are bound to remember also that you stand in the wrong. You confess it when you appeal to his generosity, and every man has the right to retain a treasure in his hand if he can. Look straight at these facts. You expect me to be all reason? Try to be. It's the way to learn whether you are really in earnest. I will try. It will drive me to worse. Try honestly. What is wisest now is, in my opinion, for you to resolve to stay. 
I speak in the character of the person you sketched for yourself as requiring. Well, then, a friend repeats the same advice. You might have gone with your father. Now you will only disturb him and annoy him. The chances are he will refuse to go. Are women ever so changeable as men, then? Papa consented. He agreed. He had some of my feeling. I saw it. That was yesterday, and at night. He spoke to each of us at night in a different tone from usual. With me, he was hardly affectionate. But when you advise me to stay, Mr. Whitford, you do not perhaps reflect that it would be at the sacrifice of all candor. Regard it as a probational term. It has gone too far with me. Take the matter into the head. Try the case there. Are you not counselling me as if I were a woman of intellect? The crystal ring in her voice told him that tears were near to flowing. He shuddered slightly. You have intellect, he said, nodded and crossed the lawn, leaving her. He had to dress. She was not permitted to feel lonely, for she was immediately joined by Colonel de Craye. End of chapter 21 Read by Lars Rolander